0: It certainly is wonderful to be here with all of you today. It's good to see everyone, and it is indeed a a privilege to speak concerning the Word of God, and I hope that what we have to consider for a little while this morning would be helpful to you, edifying to you, and encouraging to you in some way. I've chosen for a text a passage found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll read there in verse 2. Paul, writing to the young evangelist, said, Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. This morning around this great command is a potent passage or a potent portion of Scripture that gives us five reasons to obey that divine mandate. But let me just say this by way of introduction. Prison is the last place from which to expect a letter of encouragement. But that's where Paul's second letter to Timothy originates. He begins by assuring Timothy of his continuing love and prayers and reminds him of his spiritual heritage and responsibilities. Only the one who perseveres, whether as a soldier, an athlete, a farmer, or a minister of Jesus Christ, will reap the reward. Paul warns Timothy that his teaching will come under attack as men desert the truth for ear-itching words. But Timothy has Paul's example to guide him and and God's word to fortify him as he faces growing opposition and glowing opportunities in these last days. So, Paul gives the command to preach the word, but he doesn't just leave it right there. He gives time and tone. He adds that to the command. Notice the time here. He said, Timothy, you preach the word. When are you going to do it? You do it when it's in season or out of season. What does that mean? It can be better rendered like this. Preach the word, Timothy, when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. And you know, every time that we preach the word of God, it's going to be either convenient or inconvenient. So what he's telling Timothy is, Timothy, I want you to preach the word of God and preach it all the time regardless of circumstances. So that is time that is added. But then Paul adds tone. And you know, the tone there has a negative and a positive aspect. And may I just say, you know, the Bible is filled with positive things. It really is. And I like practical, positive things that encourage people to live a godly life, and all of those things are extremely important. But on the other hand, it also has negative things. What Paul is telling Timothy, he said, you preach the word of God, whether it's convenient or inconvenient, and this is what you're going to do. You're going to rebuke, and you're going to exhort. Not only to convince people of the truth, but then rebuke and exhort. That is the negative aspect of it, negatively re- uh, rebuking and positively exhorting. I like what somebody said one time about the word exhort or exhortation. I think this is really a great definition. It's to encourage people to continue to do what they already know is right. Right. You know, I think that's very important for us to always do that. Exhort or encourage people to stay in the fight and stay continuing to do the things that they already know is right. So it's negative and it's positive. Now, we preach the word of God and we do that regardless of the circumstances that exist in life. Now, may I say this too? We live in a Bible illiterate society. You know, I'm 55 almost and I remember a time In my life. And the older folks, you're going to remember a time more than I remember a time. But I remember a time when people in the world, at least everyone, had some sort of semblance of understanding about the Bible. There was a lot of Christian professing people when I grew up. And they had at least a general idea of the Word of God. But everything has changed. Things are different now. And really, we are living in a Bible-illiterate society. And here's the problem. They're reaching because of the hollow places and shallow places in their life. They're starving for the word of God, and they just don't know it, and here's the problem. In the absence of the word of God, they're being offered dangerous substitutes that don't help, and they accept them because they don't know the difference. You know, when you talk about false teaching, it's bad enough when somebody is a false teacher. But then there's innocent people that don't know the difference, And they follow those false teachers because they don't know the difference. In Romans chapter 10, though, we understand that the way that we're going to educate people concerning the word of God is through preaching. Romans chapter 10 and verse 15, Paul said, So whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear uh, uh, without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Then it says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. We have a tremendous opportunity and responsibility. And what is that? To preach the word of God. Now, I don't want to just leave it right there. Because there's a very potent portion of scripture that gives us five compelling reasons why we must obey this divine mandate. And these reasons give us a very strong motivation to preach the word. And we begin now going back in chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul said, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. i got to make a point about last days. You've heard me say this about end times and so forth and people's misunderstanding about what it really means to be in the last days. So this is review, but I'll be very brief. Last days does not mean the last few days of life. People in the world interpret it like this. See, I see all this stuff going on. We're in the last days. It's coming real soon. No. We're in the last days. That's absolutely true. But the last days began in A.D. 33. It exists in 2021, and it will continue to exist when the Lord comes back, all the way until that point. That is the last days. So when we talk about the last days, we're talking about the last dispensation of time, which is the Christian age. It's right now, beginning in A.D. 33. What Paul is telling Timothy, know this. That in these last days, he said, perilous times will come. Now, perilous is an interesting word. It can be defined as difficult or dangerous. It's also defined as savage. What Paul's telling you is, he's saying, look, in these last days, the last dispensation of time... Difficult or dangerous things are going to happen. And that brings us to point number one. The first reason to preach the word of God is because of dangerous seasons. It's also translated as epics, these seasons, and even movements. The first great movement that was thrust upon the church goes all the way back to the fourth century. And back in the 4th century, you remember, the state's religion in Rome was paganism. And all of a sudden, one day, Constantine becomes emperor. And Constantine, about to take troops into a very big battle, says that he looked up into the sky. And what he saw was, he saw the sign of the cross. And with that, the words, with this sign, conquer." Constantine goes in, a decisive battle was had, a decisive victory was brought forth. So Constantine said that I was brought forth or I got victory because of the sign of Christianity or the cross. That brought in the Holy Roman Empire and the full weight of the Roman Empire, get this now, was now behind the church at Rome. And that brought in this epic of danger of sacramentalism it was salvation by automatic ritual sacramentalism became the enemy of the gospel it became the enemy of the church it was the instrument of persecution and execution of true believers it was the bringing in and the establishment of the roman catholic system and it wasn't until the reformation movement of the 16th century before the back of sacramentalism began to be broken Man began to resist, here's a word now, and become protestant to that system. Now, sounds great, right? Well, here's the problem. By the time the 18th century rolled around, man was really thinking about himself and thinking for himself. And so all of a sudden, man said, man began to worship the human mind, and the human mind became his God. And that was the dangerous movement of rationalism. In fact, Thomas Paine wrote this. He wrote the age of reason in which he debunked the Bible and affirmed that the human mind is God. So the Bible became the slave of rationalism. May I say this too? The problem with dangerous movements is they don't come and leave. They come and they stay. Do we still have sacramentalism today? Yes, we do. Do we still have rationalism today? Absolutely, we do. And again, here's an example you've heard me use. Remember Bill Nye, the science guy? He has a debate with a creationist. And he said this as I watched on TV. He said, you know what? If you could just give me something that my rational mind can wrap my head around and accept, I would believe it. Rationalism. Something new? No, it goes all the way back to the 18th century. What else? Then we find also something else. We find that politicism came in the 18th century. Does this sound familiar? Does it still exist? Where the religious world became preoccupied with political power. It developed the social gospel and the reconstruction and liberation of religion. Then we came to the 19th century. And we came to the 20th century. And into the 1950s came the dangerous season or movement of ecumenism. That's when man decided this. Let's cast aside doctrine. Let's let's not argue over doctrine. They decided that man should not divide over such issues. Let's become sentimental. The only thing that really matters is love, and sentimentality became the issue. And by the way, there was a new ethic. There was a new uh, hermeneutic for interpreting Scripture, and it was called the Jesus ethic. You know what that says? And you might think this sounds familiar too. Jesus was the epitome of love. Was he? Absolutely. Absolutely. Jesus, Jesus was the epitome of good, is he? Yes, he is. He's all those things. Jesus was so wonderful, he wouldn't want all that negative stuff. So what we're going to do is we're going to take all the passages in the Bible that bring up retribution and judgment and all the negative stuff, and we'll just throw it out. And what we're going to do is we're just going to love, and we're going to call it the Jesus ethic. Still exists today, that new hermeneutic in the land. But there's more. Into the 1960s we came. You might remember this. I was born in the the 1960s. But in the 1960s came the dangerous season of experientialism. Where truth comes from feeling. Truth comes from intuition. Truth comes from visions or prophecies or special revelations. And you no longer look to the objective word of God. But you look to some subjective intuition to determine truth. And people were drawn away from the word of God. Into the 1980s we came. And with it came the dangerous season of subjectivism. Subjectivism was this. When psychology captured the religious world... Man was concerned about whether we could bump ourselves up the comfort ladder a little bit. And man was concerned about becoming more successful and making more money. And man-centered religion was developed. And needs-based religion and personal comfort became the goal. Then the 1990s. Some of you were born in the 1990s. But in the 1990s came the dangerous season of mysticism. And that meant this. You can believe in anything, absolutely anything that you want. It just didn't matter. Also in the 90s, brought this one, pragmatism. And pragmatism basically says appropriate means, get this, for preaching is defined by the people. All you got to do is you got to ask them, send out a survey. They'll tell you what they want. So pragmatism was just give them what they want. And truth became the servant of what works. And expository preaching became the pony express method of delivery in a computer age to people that really didn't want it in the first place. Man decided that the key to effective preaching was image or style rather than content. In the 90s also came the dangerous season of syncretism. And that said this, all religions that are monotheistic are going to heaven. Now, monotheism or monotheistic, we know what that means. It's the recognition of one God. And so there was a man that actually said that he took a trip. Yeah, he was on a trip, all right. He said he took a trip to heaven. Or as they would say, he was really tripping. He took a trip to heaven. And he said this, all religions that are monotheistic or worship only one God are going to heaven. He said this, when he wrote his book, he said he took a trip to heaven and he met Confucius. He found Buddha. He was up there too. He met Muhammad. You know what else? He found Orthodox Jews that rejected Jesus, but they were in heaven too. He found atheists of all things. Atheists. They didn't even believe in God. But he said this, they were seeking truth. And because God is ultimate truth, The very fact that man is searching after truth, though they rejected God, in a roundabout way are monotheistic. Therefore, they are saved. Therefore, they are in heaven. And that is syncretism. And on and on it goes. Folks, there's a greater need to preach the word of God today than ever before. And for the reasons of dangerous movements or dangerous seasons. In 2 Timothy chapter 3. We find a little bit more about these dangerous seasons and general descriptions of people that are behind them. 2 Timothy chapter 3 beginning in verse 2. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parent, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control... Brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I'm going to tell you, if you use that list today, it's pretty unpopular. You're probably going to make some folks angry. Notice, though, beginning in verse 5. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away, for of this sort... Are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. Janus and Jambres, remember them? They were those magicians, right? Right? That withstood Moses before Pharaoh. And what, what Paul's saying is, it's just like Janice and Jambres, as they resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. Now, that brings us to the second, the second reason to preach the word. And it's the reason of the devotion of the saints, or better still, the devotion of those that are gone before. Now, our passage is taken to 2 Timothy 3 and verse beginning in verse 10. Listen to this. But you have carefully followed my doctrine. This is what Paul's instructions to Timothy say: Manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch. And Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and, all, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Now, verse 14 says this. But you must continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. I think, really, as I paraphrase, wasn't Paul saying to Timothy, Timothy... Just preach the word. You know what I've taught you from apostolic authority and the revelation of God's word? Don't reinvent preaching, Timothy. Don't pave your own way, Timothy. It's time, like those that have gone on before, it's time for you to grab that baton and run the race. Just preach the word. The devotion of the saints, the devotion of those gone on before. Reason number two for doing just that. Then we look to verse 17. I love this. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Let me make a point about a man of God. Sometimes people say this. I've heard this my whole life. Somebody is a really good person, and they do a lot of good things. Is it good to do good things? Absolutely. Is it wonderful to be a good person? Absolutely. Is it good to go out and reach out and help others? Absolutely. But does that necessarily make them a man of God? No. In fact, the phrase man of God is found 70 times in the Old Testament scriptures alone. 70 times. And every time it becomes a technical phrase or technical term for somebody that handles the word of God. Remember in 1 Kings 13? I love that story. The story of the nameless prophet. You know what he was called? He was called a man of God. You know why he was called a man of God? Because a man of God handles the word of God. He He was to go there and prophesy against Jeroboam's altar. We know what happened to him. Not getting in the story. But that's why he went there. For that purpose. You know why? He was a man of God. Preachers and teachers need to be men of God. And may I also say this too. It is a privilege to preach the word of God and not a right. It's not. It is a privilege and an honor to preach the word of God. And sometimes we don't know what a blessing that it is or how valuable it is until it's taken away. I know of older people that finally get to the point. I know preachers that have gotten in their life older, old, and they've reached the end of their life and they've preached their last sermon. And I don't know one preacher that ever fell into that category that didn't want to preach just one more time. There was a story told about a preacher one time. He was an old man, and he had cancer, and he was dying of cancer, and it was advanced. The the disease had advanced, and he's laying there toward the end of his life in a hospital bed, and his son come in, and he said, Dad, what do you want? Is there anything I can do? What do you want? And the man said, the preacher said, the only thing I want, I want to be able to preach just one more time. He said, son, I wrote a sermon on heaven and never got to preach it. Shortly after the man dies, the son at the funeral gets up and read the old man's sermon so that his father in that way could preach one more time. It is a great blessing. I remember when I was in 2011, after my cancer treatments were over with, I remember Ryan Terwilliger said, you know, I I, want to pray for you. I want to pray for your family. What in the world could I pray that you specifically want me to pray? And I said, simply this, that I can continue to be Tina's husband, my kid's father, and don't ever forget to be able to preach the word of God again. You know, there was a period of time I didn't know if I was going to get a shot. Didn't know. It's a privilege to preach the word of God. Paul told Timothy, Timothy, just run the race. Run the race like those that have gone on before. Third reason to preach the word of God and it's a powerful one. And that is the dynamic of the scripture. You know, the, the word of God is the only thing that has the power to save. In chapter 3 and verse 15 of Second Timothy, notice this. That from childhood, that's the word brephos. And you know what that means? It means since your infancy. What Paul was saying is he was saying about the dynamic of the scriptures. He was talking about how powerful the scriptures are. And he says this, Timothy, from your childhood or from your infancies, you have known the holy scriptures. Now, what was that? He didn't know the New Testament from his early infancy. He knew what? Some translations render the words holy scriptures as uh, as, uh, sacred writings. And by the way, Sacred Writings was a Greek Hebrew-ism that referred to the Old Testament. What he was telling him is this. Timothy, from your childhood, the Old Testament scriptures led you to the point that when you heard about Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ was preached to you, you were able to accept it. That's the power, the dynamic of the scriptures. And you know, when you think about it, too, I was talking to Darren yesterday, and I thought about this point, this morning, actually. But we were talking about understanding the Bible. We were talking about understanding the New Testament and the things that we believe and stand for and so forth. And Darren said something that was very true. He said, you know, you can't really completely understand the New Testament, without having an understanding of the Old Testament. Because everything in the Old Testament pointed toward the New Testament. It wasn't a a series of failure that God put forth. Put man in the garden, oh, they failed. Bring in the old law, all that failed. Bring in Jesus Christ, now it finally worked. The Bible says that known unto God are all his works from the beginning. It was always God's divine plan that Jesus would die for the sins of the world. He knew that. And by the way, he wasn't shocked. He knew Adam and Eve would fall. He knew that too. He knew all of it. And he had a plan for that. The Old Testament was a schoolmaster, the Bible says, or a tutor, as some translations render it, to bring man to Christ. You've also heard me say that a tutor back in those times or a schoolmaster, they didn't do the teaching They took the pupil to the master teacher. That's what the old law did. The master teacher is Jesus. And that's what Paul was telling Timothy. The Old Testament scriptures brought you to hearing the new and understanding it and becoming a Christian. Raised on those sacred writings. So, the sequence. I quoted from you 2 Timothy 3.16 that all powers, uh, it's the word of God that has the power to save So here's the sequence. You take the word of God and you lay the foundation of doctrine. It reproves error and sin and you correct that. It literally means in the Greek to make someone upright who has fallen down. You pick them back up. You correct the error and you put them on the path of righteousness and train them to live an obedient life. I can't fathom preaching anything else but the word of God. Number four. Number fourth reason to preach the word. And by the way, we could stop right here. And this would be it. This would be enough. And that is the Lord demands it. That's what the Lord demands. 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 1. I charge you, therefore, Timothy, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Notice, he's saying to Timothy, this is an all-out command. You are under the scrutiny of Jesus Christ. That puts a whole other, sheds a whole nother light on it, doesn't it? When you write a lesson, teachers, you're under the scrutiny of Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important the time we spend in God's word. It's not just something that we just do in passing. It's serious business. You're under the scrutiny of the Lord, of Jesus Christ himself. That's who matters. You know what Paul said? I love this. 1 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 3. And before I read this passage, remember what they said about Paul. His letters are weighty and all of that. Your spe- his speech is contemptible. You know, really what he was saying is, as I paraphrase, Paul, you are ugly and you're a lousy speaker. You know what Paul said? I love this. He said, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Did you get that? Even what he thought didn't matter. The human court didn't matter. And those that criticized Paul didn't matter. None of it mattered. It's a small thing to be judged by you. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. I'm going to tell you, folks, sometimes when we stand and preach the truth, we are going to be criticized. It's just the way that it is. But it's nothing new. I like what our brother prayed. He referred today, he referred to the clay pot or the earthen vessel. And I'll just say further about that. An earthen vessel was a clay pot. And as our brother prayed, it was worth absolutely nothing. It was worth nothing. The only thing that made it valuable was when the treasure was put inside. So it became a container containing that which is valuable. And we know by history what people would do is they would take their valuables and they would put them in these clay pots. They would store them there. Okay? What Paul said is this. It doesn't matter what you think of me because we've got the treasure. We are, they are treasures in earthen vessels. In other words, we are nothing but clear clay pots, but we've got that which is the treasure. That's the Word of God. We've got the Word of God. So if we're criticized, if we're scrutinized, it's okay. It doesn't matter. All that matters is the Lord. Our motive, our preparation, our study, and preparing a lesson needs to be with the Lord in mind. And I got to tell you, we all enjoy having someone tell us that we did a good job. You know, I've said this before, but I don't think we actually ever do as good as the brethren say we do, nor as bad as our wife says. You know, sometimes we think that, that the sermon is judged by how it is received, and sometimes it feels good to have a pat on the back. That's all good, but that's not the point. That could never be the motive. The motive has to be what the Lord thinks. What does the Lord think? So, James 3 and 1 says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive the stricter judgment. We understand that we'll be judged by the things in which we teach. And finally and fifthly this morning, there's another reason to preach the word. And that's because of the deceptiveness of the sensual. Our passage there in chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because of their itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. By the way, the word sound, the word sound means healthy, whole, or wholesome. That's what it means. It means means wholesome. And there's going to come a time, there's going to come a time when people aren't going to want that. And they want to have somebody say to them what they want to hear. You, you know, there's a blanket statement that a lot of people that don't really want to be a Christian, they, don't, they think they're a Christian, but they don't want to be a member of the church or any other affiliation. And there's a blanket statement that is this, you can't understand the truth You can't understand the word of God exactly the same. Your interpretation might be different than my interpretation. So it really doesn't matter. And all that matters is a relationship. You know what that means, folks? You know what that is? That's this right here. That is the sensual. That's what I think. We are filled with people that I think. I just feel. I know it says that, but don't you think? After all. Don't you think God's going to fill in the blank there? Whatever. What about that? It is a matter of being driven by the cognitive and not the sensual. That's what happens. That's what the Word of God teaches. We are driven by the cognitive, not the sensual. They refuse many today to hear the great truth that saves. And according to chapter 2 and verse 16, they will rather hear worldly empty chatter that produces ungodliness which spreads to more ungodliness. Also, folks, we're in a season that if we want to be doctrinal, if we want to be clear about the word of God, sometimes we're considered divisive, unloving, and prideful. The prevailing mood, the prevailing mood in this post-modern Western culture is everybody determines truth for himself. Everybody's opinion is just as value as everybody else's opinion. And there's no room for absolute authoritative doctrine. And you know what? I could have added one more ism. That's relative ism. It's all relative. Folks, there's absolute truth. And in closing this morning, there is absolute truth. I like what one man said one time, though. He said, the worst form of wickedness in the world is the perversion of God's truth. It doesn't get worse than that. The ability to distinguish between false and truth is absolutely critical. We can't speak or guard the truth if we don't understand and know the truth. Sadly, today, wonderful people are being led astray by those dangerous movements because they don't know the difference. And when these dangerous seasons or movements threaten the church and the truth, we need to know why that they are wrong. And let us always remember that what feeds sensual desires cannot honor God. You have to preach the truth to the mind. So, why preach the word of God? For Five reasons. Because of dangerous movements that come and stay. What else? Because of the devotion of the saints or those that have gone on before. You just pick up the baton and keep doing it. Keep preaching the word of God. Don't redefine preaching. Why else? The dynamic of scripture only thing that has the power to save what else the lord demands it and that ought to be enough and finally because of the deceptiveness of the sensual we need to preach the truth to the mind and let the mind which is the heart receive the word of god and be saved i'm through this morning that's all i have thank you for your kind listening to what we had to consider we thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the church of christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.